0: And so the rounds were hitting further up. They
1: hit the tree. Yeah. And then they, instead of going into the ground.
0: So you're, ra- it's raining shrapnel. Yes, it down on your heads.
1: And we, again, we were we were dug into foxholes.
0: Yeah.
1: It was, it was just hell. It was terrible.
0: And a lot of guys were injured.
1: or oh, lost. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong. We lost 58,000 men in the entire bulge.
0: I'm Jeff Wells, and you're listening to Walk Among Heroes, a podcast dedicated to honoring the brave men and women who allow us to enjoy the greatest privilege in the world, freedom. Each Tuesday, I'll sit down with an American military hero. We will listen to unedited, authentic stories in their own voices, in their own words. We will hear incredible military stories from some of the greatest heroes to ever walk the face of this earth and who knows we may learn a few of their secret life lessons along the way although none of us can begin to imagine what they've seen heard and experienced during our time together i'll do my very best to take us all for a walk among heroes here we go I'm Jeff Wells, and you're listening to Walk Among Heroes podcast, episode 38, with Lieutenant Colonel Retired Harry Baker out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Great story as to how we came to meet Colonel Baker. Very dear friend of mine, uh, Mike Tarr, retired First Sergeant from the U.S. Army. And then currently still in the Army, uh, Sergeant First Grass Louis Schultz, uh, who resides in Wisconsin. Uh, reached out to uh, Coey Pedraza, who is the uh, daughter of Colonel Harry Baker. And they asked if we could meet Colonel Baker, who we discovered online. And he's just just an amazing guy. And again, there aren't many officers that are still with us from World War II. And Colonel Baker is 102 years old, uh, still resides in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He's a native of Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin. And he... Turned 102 in October of last year, so he will be 103 in October of this year. Uh, just an amazing man. He was an artillery officer uh, with Battery C, the 302nd Field Artillery Battalion, 76th Infantry Division. Uh, again, grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, he graduated from Riverside High School in Milwaukee in 1939. Uh, September 1st, 1939, he began college at Michigan State University. Uh, He was in the ROTC program. Coincidentally, on September 1st, 1939, Adolf Hitler and the German military invaded Poland, which officially began uh, the start of what was to be the greatest conflict in in human history, uh, World War II. Uh, In michigan state throughout his time there he participated in rotc and then in april 1943 uh, he was told that he was being inducted into the u.s army in which case he was told to report to detroit and then from there uh, he began a sequence of training at camp mccoy wisconsin which is now known as fort mccoy Uh, he went to fort sill oklahoma uh, where he went through artillery school and was inducted into field artillery and also was commissioned as a second lieutenant, returned back to Camp McCoy, Wisconsin, where in November 1944 he deployed to Europe uh, to officially uh, uh, enter combat in World War II as a brand new second lieutenant. And if you remember your timeline, The Battle of the Bulge began in December 1944. So the 76th Infantry Division, literally as they entered combat, entered right as the Bulge was beginning and literally went right into combat in the Battle of the Bulge, which was one of the largest military battles that the United States military has ever experienced. And uh, Colonel Baker has some amazing stories from being an artillery officer in World War II, being part of the Battle of the Bulge, and then continuing to move east into Germany and beyond. And then following World War II, he returned to the United States. Uh, He entered a career into the U.S. Army Reserves, and he was promoted to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel, uh, which we still refer to him as today. And he's just an amazing man. This interview that we conducted with him, uh, Mike Tarr was there and asked several questions. So you'll hear uh, Mike Tarr's voice and then also Louis Schultz. And the two of those guys, just uh, based on their enlisted experience, just asked some amazing questions, and you'll hear some of those questions. And then what you won't hear is a couple days later, after we first met Colonel Baker and we conducted this interview that you're going to hear, Uh, We talked quite a bit about the MREs and and the difference between the C rations and the rations that Colonel Baker had during his time in the military and the MREs that we have today. So a few days later, after this interview, we returned to see Colonel Baker again, and we surprised him. We brought him an MRE, and we let him open the MRE, and Mike Tarr explained to him how exactly to use the MRE and the heater, and he was just blown away by the technology in the rations that we have today, uh, not to mention everything else. But he's remarkably fit uh, for his age. You would never know that he's 102 years old. Choey uh, Pedraza, as I mentioned, uh, was absolutely amazing in setting up this meeting uh, with Colonel Baker. Uh, she's been so supportive of our charitable endeavors and, and all those things. And it's just been an absolute pleasure to get to know their entire family. And, you know, we can't wait to 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 see them again soon so uh, as i'm recording this interview it is thursday uh, may 24th i'm sorry may 25th uh we're just preparing uh to depart for europe for our normandy trip uh for this year and we're going to be going with mr clanton uh, again who went returned to normandy last year for the first time and then we also took him back to belgium uh, this year, we had the opportunity to return to Normandy and return to Europe with Mr. Clanton. Uh, and we're also going to interact while we're over there with several other veterans who were part of the D-Day invasion, who were part of the Battle of the Bulge, who participated in many different aspects of World War II. Uh, one other veteran that we're going to have with us, his name is Mr. James Kelly. Uh, he was actually a British World War II veteran who was part of the 1st Airborne Division of the Royal Ulster Rifles uh, and they landed also early in the morning of D-Day June 6, 1944 on the eastern side of the invasion front which is the British side, the flank so like our airborne troops landed on the western flank you know the 82nd, 101st Airborne well the 1st Airborne Division landed on the eastern flank and he landed in a Ranville in a glider which is one of the craziest, most harrowing aspects of the airborne operations in World War II And then you've heard of Pegasus Bridge and many of those famous missions. Well, he's going to be hanging out with us for the week uh, next week. And then we have the Band of Brothers actors that are going to be hanging out with us for the week. On June 2nd, we're going to do a panel interview with all of them, and we're going to bring all of that to you live as it happens. So each day when we're there, we're going to interview various World War II veterans and folks that were involved in Normandy, and the D-Day invasions, and then other parts of World War II. And we'll bring those interviews to you literally every day as they happen. So please, please follow along. You can follow us at walkamongheroes.org. You can follow us on the socials at Instagram, Facebook, uh, YouTube. Just search Walk Among Heroes, and you can follow along. But we're going to try our best to bring everybody along with us on this journey, uh, which, again, is simply amazing to be able to go along with – a veteran who landed there on Omaha Beach on D-Day, another veteran who landed in the glider, Charles Shea, who was a medic on Omaha Beach on D-Day, and just some amazing, amazing personalities. Uh, we're booking trips. If anybody's interested in actually going to Normandy, we're booking trips for 2024. Of course, that's the 80th anniversary of D-Day, which may be one of the last times the World War II veterans are able to attend. Uh, D-Day week itself is already full uh, but we're taking a couple other trips in June which is the most beautiful time of the year there and the weather is just beautiful and then we also have a new budget experience that we're offering for d-day week uh, which just simply provides a daily tour so you pay for your travel over there you pay for finding a place to stay but then we'll pick you up every single day and take you on the same tour uh, that that everybody gets with some exclusive access to certain places in Normandy and it's just, Really, an unbelievable experience, especially for the 80th anniversary. And then also next year, we're taking our first trip to Italy uh, from May 15th through 22nd, 15th through 22nd, 2024 for the 80th anniversary of Monte Cassino, which is a very famous battle in Italy, one of those brutal battles in all of World War II, it was sort of a World War One style uh, trench battle. So lots of exciting stuff that's happening. If you happen to be in Normandy. And you'd like to join us on June 2nd. There are a few tickets remaining. You can find tickets for what we're calling Night for Our Heroes, which is a panel discussion with several different World War II veterans, several different Band of Brothers actors. But you can visit www.walkamongheroes.org forward slash night for our heroes. And you can find a few tickets remaining on there if you'd like to join us. Either way, come find us while we're in Normandy. Send us a note on Instagram, Facebook. Reach out to us. We'd love to meet you, we'd love to see you, and we'd love to introduce you to our World War II veterans. So, thank you so much for listening, as always, and without further ado, here's Lieutenant Colonel Retired, Harry Baker. A little background about Mike and I. So, Mike retired from the Army uh, after 27 years?
2: 26. 26. 26 years.
1: We're doing what?
2: I started out in artillery. And then I ended up in logistics.
1: Where did you serve in artillery?
2: I was at Fort Sill, Korea, Fort Bragg, Germany.
1: I I was in all those places.
2: Yeah, and then then I switched over to the reserve side. I was an active guy on reserves. I was on Silver Spring here, Um, Chicago, New York, Indiana, Texas. So yeah, they moved me around quite a bit. They sure did. 26 years, 14, 14 PCSs.
0: I was in for eight years total and I did ROTC as well. Uh, I grew up in Florida and went into the army after graduating college as an officer and I was a combat engineer and I spent most of my time overseas. Uh, That was about the time that Iraq was, was just happening. And so I spent, uh spent quite a bit of time in iraq uh spent time in korea and most of what we did in iraq was more like infantry stuff because at the yes, time yeah. at the time i
1: know where it was
0: <laughs> at the time normal normally like when i first went in combat engineers were equipped with what they called the 113s which were the troop carriers you know the lightly armored troop carriers But at the time my battalion, which was the 91st engineer battalion with the first cavalry division out of Fort Hood, Texas, we had Bradleys. We were equipped with Bradleys and Bradleys are more highly armored, highly powerful vehicles like the infantry used. So when we went over to Iraq, our division needed another task force to help cover down on Baghdad, the area of Baghdad, secure Baghdad. So because we had those vehicles already. They took our engineer battalion and turned us into an infantry task force. So we did some things that we weren't necessarily trained to do, but we all did that.
1: Well, at least you lived.
0: We we did. And unfortunately, not everybody did. That's right. As you well know.
1: Terrible results of those roadside bombs. (laughs) Well.
0: And you, Colonel Baker, you grew up in Madison. Right, you grew up, you were uh, raised in Madison?
1: I was born in Madison. Born in Madison. Raised in Milwaukee. Okay. Went school here, high school here. Went to Michigan State College. Where I was in ROTC. <clears throat> we were, they were like, the hall called Demonstration Hall at Michigan State, where we practice our artillery, uh, laying the battery, etc. We we're called in there one day, and we we're told by our major that this is voluntary for you if you agree, and if you don't agree, it's mandatory for you. You're going to you're going to Detroit to be inducted in the Army as a corporal because we were losing men to the Canadian Air Force, which is just across the Detroit River. And those men died over England. Wow. And that way they kept us from leaving school.
0: What year was that?
1: 1942
0: so just after Pearl Harbor
1: yeah there's another story when I heard of Pearl Harbor my girlfriend and I were in a movie we came out of the movie on a Sunday and there were newsboys on the streets yelling Pearl Harbor's bomb mm-hmm. nobody knew where the hell Pearl Harbor was
0: Pearl Harbor happened. What did you think for yourself at that point? When, when you heard the news, did you think, oh my gosh, we're going to war? Or what did you think at that point?
1: I think, um, I said, we were, we were confused. We didn't know what was going to happen. And we got to Beverly uh, the next day. The colonel, the major, said, Say we are, we don't know where this is going, we don't want you to leave your, your school. It took us so weeks to understand how serious this was. Yeah. I just think that everyone alone was 1,200 men. 1,200 men.
0: That's a, That's just, it's incomprehensible. I guess the only thing we have to compare that to is September 11th. That's right in our, in our minds, but...
1: To tell you the long reaching goal, kids kids at school had relatives that were killed in that event.
0: Thinking about the impact of that one event on our world today, looking back and what happened as the U.S. now all of a sudden was at war, And had we not entered the war, imagine what would have happened to the world. It would be a very different place.
1: Very fascist. Yes. Because the Germans were a great army. And uh, with the average German soldier, I would just as soon serve with them as with any soldier in the world. Besides from the fact that they were Nazis, yeah, they were were good soldiers. That's
0: what everybody says that they were the best the world had ever seen.
1: Yeah, very good
0: at that point. And so you you uh, completed your ROTC. You you went to Detroit. You went to Detroit. Were inducted in the army. Inducted in the army at that point.
1: When our ROTC credits were complete, they took us out of school. Yes. And I was sent to Fort Sill.
0: And you found out prior to going to Fort Sill that you were going into artillery?
1: Oh, uh, I had been in artillery all the years. The That's right. And we uh, had done our training on French 75s. I see. Which were, uh, well, uh, I guess a very good gun, but not the firepower.
2: So when you entered the ROTC, your branch was selected at that point. Yes. Then, yep. okay, so that's a little different. A little different now.
1: And I did it for one reason: stay out of the infantry.
2: Yeah, that's a good reason. You're smart, <laughs> smart, the king of
1: battle. Except, fellas, I became a forward observer with division artillery, and I had a. A driver and a radio man, and three people went with the infantry to bring down fire on the observance. So I missed my infantry.
0: <laughs> the case be, being a forward observer is one of the most dangerous things you could ever do because you're so far forward. In many cases, you're you're either with the infantry or you're I, even.
1: I was ahead, as you say. How did you know that?
0: Because, well, we still have forward observers today in our military, but uh, Mike and I had had the honor of meeting a, uh, as you just described, you had a radio man and a driver. And Mike and I had met and spent time with uh, one of the radio men who was on that team, a forward observer team, with the 84th division, which was not far from the 76th division. They were involved in the Battle of the Bulge, as well.
1: It was 84th had log... Rail splitters. Rail,
2: Rail splitters. And interestingly enough, there's, they're an Army Reserve unit here in Wisconsin. No? Yes, now.
1: I got... 100 years ago. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so that's why we, when we heard that you were involved in the artillery, we got really excited because... And then, and then we read your story... Uh, oh, we did. Yeah, Cody sent us your story I see. and we were reading that and we got really excited because we have a, a special place in our hearts for artillery men. I got it. And so you did your training at Fort Sill, which still is where they train That's for, where I did it. That's where they train artillery today. Still at Fort Sill. How was Fort Sill coming from coming from Wisconsin? Oh
1: God, Michigan. Terrible. heat, heat was terrible the snakes were bad there was the aiming point we always used the balloon hanger aiming point balloon hanger on the in the fort itself we spent a lot of time out in the range perfecting the trying to perfect the Forward Observation Method. And
0: did you have your binoculars with the...
1: Articulation. Articulation. Yeah. That's right. Oh, yes. We had our hands too. You, You could judge with so many meters, so many meters, a hand with so many meters, for instance, 10 meters, to adjust your fire. 20, 30, a hand might be 50 meters or 50 yards. When you report back to the guns, a 50-yard burst, you could judge when you with your hands.
0: Hmm. And um, you practiced all that in training?
1: Yes, we did. But not, we've defined it best in combat because there was, of course, an ammunition shortage. We we were trained using 37-millimeter guns to save ammunition. I see. Using the same methods, of course.
0: And you were at Fort Sill. You were still, if I remember correctly, you were still at Fort Sill when... When June 6, 1944, when D-Day occurred. Uh, or you were at Fort McCoy at that point. That's right. So you were at Fort Sill in 1942 and 1943, and then you went to Fort McCoy in 1943? Is that
1: right? I was commissioned uh, December 11th of December 9th of forty three. Forty three. okay. And I had been in Sill about six months.
0: Okay. Uh, and then you went to... Camp McCoy at the time. Camp McCoy. And that's where you were when June 6, 1944.
1: Yeah. I had married and the division replaced the second division, which, did, which apparently tore the town of Lacrosse up because we were banned from going into the town because the population didn't want us because the 2nd Division was so nasty.
2: Was the university still in Lacrosse then? Did they still have the university over there? I,
1: don't, I didn't know.
2: Oh, because that's a college town. To this day, the soldiers that are at Fort McCoy, they still go to Lacrosse to raise heck because there's a college town. Well, where are the soldiers going to go? Where the college people are, right? There used so. to be a good
1: brewery there <laughs> called and with a brewery in the college, and being that near to McCoy.
0: So you married Pat, Miss Pat, who is your sweetheart, your high school or childhood sweetheart? Child. Childhood sweetheart. When did you first meet Pat? When did she enter
1: your life? Had, I was in the eighth grade. Okay. Patty. Her father came in, transferred in from DuPont to Milwaukee. And she was a new girl. And uh, the kids had a rough game of baseball after, after school. You start in the outfield and work your way up to bat. I was on third base that day, and this new girl had come in who was on first base. And my sister at that point was playing shortstop. Okay. And I said to my sister, look at that new girl. She's got the best looking legs I ever saw. And then my sister, damn her soul, she ran over there and told her. And that's how we met. Talk about a line, huh?
0: What a great story. <laughs> But really you had to thank your sister for
1: Yeah. And the top picture of Patty's legs.
0: Oh <laughs> perfect. <laughs> that's so wonderful. And how many years how many years were you married?
1: Seventy seven. Wow. Yeah.
0: Seventy seven years. You don't hear that very often.
1: You <laughs> I've
0: never I've never I've never met anybody that's Married seventy-seven I guess,
1: years. I guess today they don't take it quite so seriously.
0: When you were when you were deployed, did you write back and forth between? <laughs> did you have time to write?
1: We had a thing then called uh, APO Army Post Office.
0: Still have it. Still have it.
1: They had a system of we could write. Some section took care. I guess quartermaster took care of sending these letters across. The trouble was, man, because of my being in all different places, I never got one letter that was in context with another. I see. So I wrote to her. I told her she then numbered every one ah. in the back and when a mail call came i could put
0: piece them together
1: so there was some alignment yeah
0: <laughs> well when you're when you're in combat like that you may not get mail for a long time and
1: you do you, not get it Yeah. nor food nor clothing frequently ammunition
2: well not much has changed in In 70 years, when we were deployed to to Kosovo in the early, or the late 90s, it was much the same. Mail call would come when the food would come, because they had us at a forward observation point.
1: Were you in this prepared meal now?
2: MREs? Yes. Oh, we both ate our fair share of...
1: I I never saw one.
0: I don't know how you felt about your rations back in the day, but we probably feel the same way
2: about... Glad to get them. Yeah.
1: Where is Kosovo?
2: That is in the Balkans, in Eastern Europe. In '99, when Milosevic was doing all the ethnic cleansing in Albania,
1: oh, they—they
2: sent us over. We deployed in Albania. I was artillery then, um, and our job was to slow him down, and we did. Um,
1: we didn't get a lot of coverage of that. Maybe it was the personal nature of it that the TV didn't. Give us much coverage. You realize the TV didn't start until forty seven.
0: So you, Colonel Baker, you went to Camp McCoy. So you were at Camp McCoy. At what point did you know you were headed headed overseas?
1: Somebody came from Washington about June and complained to the major general whose name was Schmidt that our losses weren't high enough for good training. (laughs) Right I don't know what his background was. We were told by then by fall we'd be probably overseas. So we were there till about Thanksgiving when we Took a train to Massachusetts Camp Camp Miles Standish Okay Lined up to get on the boat at the Boston Navy Yard which was I can't remember the date we departed December of Forty-three, but the thing I remember most, uh, fellas, they slipped out late at night, and when we woke up in the morning, we're on the ocean. I never saw my country leave, and hmm. it's stayed to this day.
0: You put that in your story too. Okay. Oh, you did. You did. I know So you basically went on board, went to sleep, basically, that evening, and then you woke up in the morning. That's exactly what happened. Wow. Open seas.
1: I had nothing to do on that Sunday. So I went to a symphony orchestra in Boston Hall that afternoon, had dinner, went back to the boat, and we headed south. We noticed that by the sun, and we could not understand, nor could the Navy tell tell us, or would they, if they knew. And we came abreast of Miami, and coming out of the Gulf was a huge oil convoy. Mm. And we joined convoy to England, and they had... Marble was covered by little things called destroyer escorts which went through the convoy at high speed. Terrible angle. I don't know how the guys could stand. But they... I don't know how many we might have lost because the convoy was days long. Long convoy. We lost some people, but not in our
0: And so you made the journey across and you landed was it Southampton you landed? Southampton? And you you uh if I remember correctly, you said you lived the local uh British people opened up their um, homes um, for you to stay. And um, so you lived there for, for a little while.
1: I don't recall how long I met there two or three weeks. 'Cause I didn't get to the to Europe until December. Six months after D Day.
0: Nineteen forty four. Yeah. December forty four. Right about the time and you landed at Le Havre, France, and that was just about the time that the Germans were attacking for the Battle of the
1: Bulge. About they attacked that. Attack the Bulge on the 16th of October, of December, forty-four, forty-four, And we are coming from La Harve to Luxembourg to meet General Patton, who had just fought the battles in Sicily and brought his third army up. The 106th Division, was sitting in the Ardennes when that attack started. And they lost their Division.
0: Well, they had a 12-mile front, huge front they were trying to secure, and the Germans just...
1: And they knew it was the Green Division. Yeah. And we had no time to set our wire out between headquarters.
0: And so you were sort of on... This, your division, when you got into it during the bulge, was sort of on the flank
1: well, of the bulge. Uh, we were really in the uh, assignment to reduce this bulge of 75 miles. Yeah. We had to reduce that bulge. But the incredible thing is, the Ardennes was such a wooded area, nobody would attack through there. Mm -hmm. So the Americans thought. So they paid no attention to the ardents. But it didn't take much for that tank and heavy crawler equipment to knock these trees down. There were only three or four major roads in the whole state.
0: And so your initial mission when you arrived was to fire contain them contain the bulge
1: contain the germans
0: Contain the germans
1: they were trying to get to the Meuse river and thence to antwerp right yeah
0: so you division artillery were laying down fire on various targets uh yeah. various german targets at that point yeah. and so at that point you were not a forward observer Yet or were you at that point?
1: I'd had the training for a Fort Reserve and it took quite a long while to establish our position. Okay. Before we sent out the lieutenants. We had eighteen lieutenants in division artillery and the whole mess. We lost 15 to kill, missing, and wounded. Jeez. I and two other guys survived. But that that's, that, that. wasn't just our dead. We also went under to the Rhine River. Right. And so,
0: so you were... Uh, the guns that you were firing were the one fives, one oh five. Okay.
1: But with the fire control system, my initial legislation on a point could be followed through all the various guns. If it was such a good target, we'd fire for effect for the whole battalion. I see. Which was three batteries, each of four guns. So that was for twelve. And if there's not enough you could call in core on that same single observation. I see. The Russians on the other hand were firing wheel to wheel with their guns. I see. So we have a strength good advantage there.
0: What was the range on the one oh fives? Typical
1: range? I would guess about 11 miles. Okay. Okay. I have to laugh. It was also about the range of the walkie talkie. If you remember, they were kind of like an egg carton with an aerial.
0: Yeah.
1: You get 12 miles out of them. Now you go to this thing and talk to New Delhi. That's right.
0: <laughs> Those would have probably come in handy back oh, in. Oh,
1: boy. I can't believe it.
0: Back during that time. So how long so the guns would, would set their positions and then they would fire as needed. How long would they be in position before they move? Would they wait until the infantry advanced a certain distance and then the guns would move? You'd get the order to move?
1: Exactly right. Depending on whether it was stalemated or moving. So it's hard to tell.
0: And did you have enough ammunition at that point?
1: To Only occasionally, we didn't have enough. They had recovered from my training days to the actual days the ammunition factories yeah. had put out, accelerated the output. Pretty good, pretty good coverage.
0: And they didn't have earplugs back then?
1: <laughs> well, I, I was a long way from the guns.
0: Well, I know, I know. But the guys that were, the loaders and, and the guys that were loading the the guns, they I didn't have still any. still
1: see it today. I watched these Russians with their mortars. Yeah. You see that back away against the explosion? I guess they don't have earplugs either. <laughs> Did either of you lose any hearing? A little
0: bit. Did you? I lost... Uh, about half of the hearing on my right side, which by the way, comes in handy sometimes with my wife. I can get away sometimes with, uh, they do? some, some, some latitude there. So I have a built in, built in excuse. So you, from the time that you landed, you contained the bulge first. Your division's mission was to contain the bulge. Then after the bulge was contained, That's when you started moving east. Yeah.
1: We moved to a place called Cassell.
0: And you, you knew, because you were an officer, you knew pretty well where you're at. I can tell from reading your article that you knew, because a lot of times there aren't many officers. There aren't many soldiers still living from World War II, but there are very, 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 very few officers. And so, a lot of times, like if we talk to a, like Mr. Clanton's a good example, you know, he was a radio man. So, a lot of the, in today's military, they'll give every soldier has a map, every soldier has a GPS, every soldier has, knows where they're at. They do. They do, for the most part. For the most part. But back during World War II, the younger guys, they had no idea many times. They would just. They did. Yeah.
1: Until the maps came up, and then frequently we we would overrun the map, Uh, so we'd have to stop. Send my driver back to get get maps of what's ahead. Wow! And that delayed us.
0: So, how did it work? And you talk a little bit about you talk about this in your article, but how did it work for a typical forward observer mission? So when you would, would you go to the rear to link up with your headquarters and then move forward, or would you attach yourself to the infantry normally, or how would that work? Well,
1: it sounds easy. <laughs> yeah. But the infantry actually didn't seem to mount very well. Especially in the command area. I had to send my driver back for maps. I forgot so I got the question.
0: I just wondered how a typical forward observer mission would work if you would attach yourself to the infantry or how that sort of panned out.
1: Mainly my radio operator. Okay. So that's what we're going to do. Where do you go? It was too cumbersome to just use the driver. He was used for food frequently, maps. Oh, I forgot to tell you. The signal core radio, number 610, was composed of two parts. Well, it was on the Jeep, and you've seen those with blank antennas. Sure. Well, when you take that radio apart, each part had batteries in it, which required some poor soul to carry batteries. So the three of us had backpacks. The radio operator took took the battery, and they're heavy. And, the, and I took half a radio, and the driver took half a radio. and it had to be assembled. So there wasn't a lot of rushing going on.
0: And you were in a jeep? You had a jeep?
1: Uh, to the point that we go into combat. That went back to the service battery, and the three of us went on foot with injury. I wow. lived in the in the cold in the entry
0: in the trenches and that was one of the no co-
1: trenches ground was too hard
0: that's right it's one of the coldest winters in history oh god yes
1: yeah. I still have probably the warmest apartment in this whole place you may be uncomfortable now
0: no it's perfect
1: should be 75. he's
0: from Texas <laughs> I like the warm weather I like the warm weather <laughs> me too that was the coldest winter in the past 40 years at that point.
1: i, I was told that. Wow, when we had the the gift of snow to, to make snow reduce, we could dig into those. I mean you've talked about it. but you could you could dig in against the wind. Mm-hmm. so you' stuck in there. You might you might sleep, but and you I, will smoke. I never smoked so much in my life. Yeah.
0: I remember in one point in your story, you talked about when you were in the forest and the German artillery was coming in. Dreamers, talk about how scary that must have been. That
1: it's frightening, awful, and beyond your control.
0: And so the rounds were hitting further up. They hit
1: the tree. Yeah. And then they, instead of going into the ground.
0: So you're, ra- it's raining shrapnel. Yes, it down on your heads.
1: And you, we, again, we were we were dug into foxholes. Yeah. It was, it was just hell. It was terrible.
0: And a lot of guys were injured, oh, lost.
1: I think, and correct me if I'm wrong. We lost 58,000 men in the entire bulge. In that
0: 10-minute period or whatever that those Germans were hitting you with artillery, tons of casualties just in that short time.
1: Yeah. Wow. And, uh, did, did I talk about trench foot?
0: A little bit, you did. You said a lot of guys were...
1: Terrible. Those combat boots were almost like sponges. They seemed to absorb moisture and your feet would freeze and the gangrene set in because there was no circulation.
0: What kind of what kind of warm weather gear did the U.S. issue?
1: They, they missed it. The headquarters, you must realize that that our people thought Germany had been defeated then yeah. before the military had been of It was ignored because it was too wooded for anybody to attack. The war in Japan had developed and our headquarters prepared for the Japanese war. So they cut off our winter clothing. Mm. So we... I had an Eisenhower jacket on. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a long coat. There weren't many of them. We didn't have footwear. We were not prepared for winter there. Yeah. yeah. So,
0: as you moved east, at what at what point did you start picking up speed and moving more often? Uh, after the Bulge, after the Battle of the Bulge,
1: three yes, miles past Cassel. Okay, Cassel, which is northwest. Why I don't know.
0: How long did it take you to get to the Rhine River? Approximately.
1: Uh, that's that's I Can't remember. We had to fight through small villages. I saw another another two months, maybe.
0: And were you there when when General Patton peed in the? I was, in the-
1: I heard about it, but I didn't see it. He was on the pontoon bridge.
0: <laughs> that would have been something to.
1: Oh, that was a, that was a, a good morale builder
0: oh yeah oh yeah and,
1: and he was dramatic he was a good officer
0: did you like him i know some people liked him some
1: people i liked. yes i did like him he was he was too vigorous at times but that was the way he was built
0: and boy he sure had russia's number he called he he recognized the threat with russia long before anybody else did he sure did that guy was meant to to be a general.
2: Did you have the opportunity to meet him at all, or...?
1: I can't say I met a, I was in a village called Trier on the Moselle River, an old ancient Roman town. And Patton, I was in the headquarters, having to do with something, as a second lieutenant. And Patton came in with all his pistols on. He marched to a map and he told our general, General Schmidt, I want that place by Thursday, not another target. I was over in the corner.
0: That's pretty neat, though.
1: Signal lieutenants didn't meet many generals.
2: Wow. It's the same today. Yeah, What's that? it remains the same today. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the guys doing all the work usually don't meet the...
1: That's right.
0: You know, I, I read somewhere that the lieutenant rank was one of the highest attrition ranks during World War II. Yeah, yeah it was. The two leaders, the guys that were out with the soldiers.
1: Yep. Yeah. Wow. I was still today, there was a, once a movie called They Were Expendable and then applied to the Lieutenant Green. As a matter of fact, we had a delay in going to Fort Sill from Camp McCoy, and the powers that be said, we've been delayed because our losses were not as high as we thought they were going to be. So that delayed us down the line. It didn't register then, though, but it did later.
0: Yeah. So how far were you allowed to move east before you were told to stop moving in Germany?
1: Well, I, we were in contact every day with Fire Direction Center. And we were told... of. Plans were. It isn't like today, where everything you say in that thing, the world knows, so they could give us orders directly on the walkie-talkie, or the SCR-610. We would not given much time to do anything. We were only a group of three, Yeah. Quick Mobile. I know the day before, maybe, or the night before, in the morning, your, your, your Jeep will be brought up from service battery during the... That was another thing. The officer always sat on the right, driver, mm-hmm. back. Coming to these towns with church steeples, lots of German snipers to cover those higher points, and that was the number one target. Mm. Was it? The we Then the Germans were stretching where?
0: Terrible booby, booby traps.
1: No. So that as you drove through, oh, so it
0: hit, hit you, catch it. Wow, clothesline, yeah.
1: And they had one called a bouncing benny, uh huh, which came about to your waist and exploded through your midsection.
0: Jeez. When, when you I'm, were when you were moving into these German towns, did some of the towns surrender, or did they all try to fight, or was it mixed?
1: Most people stayed inside. And many Germans won't well, admit but they didn't like it either. Yeah.
0: Did Were they friendly to the
1: Americans? Many were. Okay. Many were not. We always know who the mayor because the mayor had, had, always had the biggest manure dump. <laughs> he had the most cattle in.
0: I've never heard that before. Yep. Vegas manure dove. <laughs> did they uh, did they give you food and alcohol and things like that, these towns or did they no, just No, but keep- we used
1: to go to a home and bang the door and demand eggs and some of those we were pretty successful. <laughs> and my driver was from Texas. Kill somebody. He was kind of a cook. We had a Ford Observer's kit with a little mess can, and he could make fried eggs. God, that was wonderful.
0: Much better than the rations, I would imagine. Well, we
1: were we were glad to get the rations because many nice odd stuff didn't come up. a matter of fact we used to tie a can of a C-Rex, do you know what the Sea rex was? Yeah. To the manifold of one of the trucks to heat it up and it blew up over the engine.
2: <laughs> See, us, us young guys had you heard? we of followed your examples we do the same thing <laughs> but you get the MRE packs and in, in they're lined with Foil, but you'd set them on there, and it would usually—if you didn't pay attention—to cook through them, and it would make a mess all over the engine.
1: What was, the what was what it composed of? It was
2: like a plastic stuff? wrapper over like aluminum foil, and you ripped the top off, and you could eat it out of the pouch. Oh! So we'd take the pouch and we'd set it on the exhaust manifold.
1: So it was kind of a tray.
2: More of a bag. More of a bag. Bag. Imagine,
0: imagine a. Um an envelope, for lack of a better word. Imagine an envelope, and, and the envelope's full of the liquid or the food, and you tear the end of the envelope off, and you eat it.
1: Just like that.
0: Just like that. And nowadays, though, they they come with a, a hy- hydro water uh, heater. So it's a, it's a clear uh, sleeve, and you take the envelope or the yeah. food, put it in the sleeve, you pour a little water, about that much water in there from your canteen. Roll the top over. Roll the top over and it activates the heater. But it didn't always work and sometimes it didn't work. So that's why we used other ways to heat, you know, to heat the, uh, heat the MREs.
2: Well, ours were part of the heaters coming out. That's right. Yeah. What year did the heaters come out roughly? Uh, I would say probably the mid to late nineties, they came okay. out with those heaters and they were water-activated.
1: Well, are you both young enough? Did they have K-rations?
2: They were gone by then. They were. Gosh, we God. had tea rations. Tea rations they had in these big pans and then they would boil the pans and then they would open them up. So if we were around the, the mess hall, then we could go to the field kitchen and get those.
1: So that, that would be a less emergency area.
2: Correct. But when we were in our launchers, because I was in a mobile, uh, mobile launcher system, yeah. then we would eat the MRE. But they had moved us north, and, and that's all we had to eat for probably a good six weeks. Really? It was just the MREs. Every once in a while, they would bring the hot food up. But it was a three-and-a-half-hour convoy. By the time it got to us, it was pretty cold.
1: Was that when you were in Kosovo?
2: Yes, it was when I was in Kosovo. Um,
1: I must look that up.
2: It was much like when Jeff first went into Iraq, because he was initial. By the time I went to Iraq, it was later in the war, and everything had been starting to build up already.
1: See, I can't visualize it as a desert-like adobe buildings compared to here uh, Where
0: we were, we were in Baghdad, which is a dense, dense city. So if you imagine a lot of kind of, you know, the, the uh, concrete buildings. Brick-type Right. A lot of them all together on top of one another. Every single house is the same. You had a two story brick type thing with a little courtyard, one after the other, after the other, after the other. Sometimes they had a sheep or a goat or something that would be in the courtyard that they would, you know, butcher or whatever. Keep, Keep. maybe a dog. Sometimes a lot of stray dog, very trashy place. You know, a lot of sewage.
1: What the hell do I look like that?
0: Raw sewage and and uh, things like that. So did you make it as far as the Elbe River? Uh, on the on the advance? Did you ever uh, make it to the Elbe?
1: No, I wasn't on the Elbe. Okay. But uh, you know, he the already did. And uh forgotten his name. He was well known for a while because he brought back a Russian cigarette oh. to prove that he had been up there with them on the um.
0: They say, I've heard stories that as the Russians were advancing, all the civilians, the Germans were trying to come over to the United States lines because they didn't want to be taken by the Russians. No. They were no. all to surrender
1: I you? don't think they're any different now yeah they're rapists and
2: yeah did you have any interactions I, with the Russian soldiers I did not you did not
1: no I I had a did you folks ever hear of a halazone tablet Mm-mm. it was supposed to purify your water Mm -hmm. So you took your canteen every day, put a halosone tab in it. Supposedly enough chlorine to kill the water. We were getting our water out of ditches and streams. Mm -hmm. And I think the army learned a lot about more water control. It was ignored at first. I particularly think in your area, where you must have had lots of need for water yeah yeah did they supply you well they did yes they
0: did uh that was a big focus as you said of, of the water frankly i don't know where it came from they had these things they Wildly called plants yeah they had these things called water buffaloes uh that there that, that were big tanks on wheels and they would fill them up and it would say oh, it would say the quartermaster it would say either potable or non-potable. Potable, of course, you could drink; non-potable, you couldn't. And then they also brought in
2: pallets and pallets of bottled water uh, from bottling plants. Well, the army, the quartermasters in the army now have a system called uh, a ROPU reverse osmosis water purification units, and they can literally suck water out of a sewer treatment plant, and it'll come out crystal clear. Damn. Yeah. We used those quite a bit. In Central America, we brought those guys in, and they would take it out of the nastiest water. Well, but by the time they were done with it, it was perfectly clean.
1: We we drank supposedly potable water in the streams, but this stuff did not do its job. Mm. At that time, I don't think they knew of viruses. They knew bacteria mm-hmm. They kill with chlorine. Mm-hmm. So I ended up in the hospital with uh, yellow jaundice mm. from the water.
2: Well, that's where you. I, I read that in your story, so that's how you ended up with the, yep. the water. Yeah.
1: The water caused it. Yep.
0: Where, were you, where were you in Germany's surrenders finally?
1: I was in Verdun. Okay. I had been sent back with the hepatitis. Or Jonas, into a tough life. Beds, sheets, food, nurses. <laughs> Sounds so like pretty good duty to me. I couldn't believe it. To this day, the, these kids had uh, second lieutenant bars on their uniforms. So I called them my golden girls. They just did everything you can imagine, coming out of this mess. So we were, I was in Verdun in the officer ward, and when it, the news came, more guns that people had in their homes hidden away were being shot up in the air. Celebrate. Yeah. Wow. I think it was May 7th, but I'm not sure.
0: And what did you, how did you feel at that point?
1: Couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe when I got to the hospital because I'm not a small target and I wasn't hit
0: the good lord the good lord protected
1: me. did you me. ever hear of a nipple Uh uh-uh. it was a big rocket controlled thing the Germans had with a mortar with a explosion head about that big okay and I got hit one day in the combat boot right wow. in the ankle. But it's been spinning. us so it just bruised me terribly. It didn't didn't even cut the there was a leather flap on the old combat boot. Mm-hmm. It, hit that, it hit that leather flap. It aches for about three days. Big chunk of the Neville were for
0: hmm. So how long after Germany surrendered. Did you stay over in Europe before you were able to come home and see Pat?
1: I was returned to my union which was just at the border of Okay. Not far from the plant where the famous Leica camera was made. Okay. We were sent back to the channel to a series of camps. Named after cigarettes, Patton's code name was Lucky Strike. Okay. There was Ch- Chesterfield, Pall Mall, Gold. And we were told there they were going to go to England, not back to America, to, f- to fit up to go to the Asia A for the Japanese. So that shot everything in the head there until well May June and July and then on August sixth they dropped the bomb Mm -hmm. which we didn't believe for the first two days. But there was a lot of beer drunk during that period. We celebrated and celebrated and celebrated. And then about not more than a week later I was on the Queen Mary coming back to the mm. states, and that ship had, I think, fifty-five hundred troops on us. And coming back on the ship, it went fast. The galley never closed. Mm. If you had breakfast at eight o'clock, you had dinner ready at, at night. Breakfast at ten o'clock, dinner at ten. Breakfast at 12, you dinner at midnight, and then Canada's putting food out. And we crossed the Atlantic in three and a half days, quite fast in those times, to a place called Fort Dixon, in New Jersey. Been there. Oh, yeah. I didn't know we are still there.
2: It's uh Army Reserve Base. Oh. It's actually a joint base now with an Air Force base, Joint Base McGuire-Dix. Is there a lot of housing? There's still some housing there, not as much as there was. Um, but they deployed a lot of soldiers um, to the Global War on Terror through Fort Dix as well. Going out? Going out to Iraq and Afghanistan. Oh. Um, they used Fort Dix quite a bit to mobilize the reservists um, to go over to Iraq and Afghanistan.
1: Let me ask you. Did you fellas have any idea where you were going, into what you were going? Did anybody cover the terrible climate of high, cold nights? A little bit. A little bit. A little bit,
0: they did. Yeah, you never fully prepared for it. They trained us a little bit about uh, on that, but, you know, it's awfully hard to deal with the heat oh, when you're yeah. carrying 100 pounds of stuff. You know, that's... Cause we would wear this body armor oh, God. and the body armor was so tight and you would sweat and it, it was just, it, it was like, it smelled when you took your body armor off, it smelled almost like ammonia, very high, real strong smell. It was un, un, very hard to describe because you just sweat and sweat and sweat and sweat, and it was so tight on your skin. And a lot of the guys got skin infections and things like that from the, from the heat. But it, would, it was a, uh, not unusual to be 125 or 130 degrees oh, I understand. with all the gear.
1: But you didn't have much advanced no. information on well, us. I um, mean, we, we
2: knew we were to the desert. Yeah, our briefings then, the intelligence briefings, <laughs> we were fairly familiar. But as Jeff said, I mean, you don't you know until break. you're actually boots on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would assume we had much more information than you did when they put you on the boat in Boston Harbor and sent you.
1: Well, Europe is much like our own states. It's a lovely country. Austria is beautiful. Germany is beautiful. When you don't have to crawl across it.
0: (laughs) When did you finally get to reunite with Pat? When did you finally get to see Pat when you came home? How long did it take for you to actually get? I assume she was here in Wisconsin
1: while you were gone. She was, I know. We, we, her folks brought her down to one of the railroad stations. It's LaSalle Street, I think. It was June or July. We were going to Europe. Asia August 6th was the bomb perhaps September 10th guess so long ago I was still yellow from this and of course I was down about 40 pounds and then I asked her where I going to live now that we're back we had no home no money we're gonna live in a place called Okachi. I said, What did you say? A place called Okachi. My folks have a cottage there. So we wanted to live in this Indian place just up the line with her folks. It's just good to be back.
0: What did you what did you at that point in your life, what did you I know you ended up Staying in the Army Reserves, but at that point in your life, when you got out of the, after the war, what did you want to do at that point?
1: Of course, I didn't know. There were 12 million guys coming out looking for work. Very hard. Sure. I had not finished my degree. One thing I wanted to do was finish my degree from school. So I went to work in Oak, yeah, Waukesha with a outfit of it called EFCO on an engine lathe, which I'd never done in my life. But it allowed me to get my money, money together to get back to school.
0: And then at what point did you go back into the reserves, or did you just stay? I
1: never never got a discharge. Okay. Did did you take a discharge?
2: I did, and then after 9-11, I went back in.
1: Did you have to be sworn in and all that sort of thing?
2: I did. Again? I I had to re-enlist, because I was enlisted, so of course I had to re-enlist.
1: What what rank were you?
2: I retired as a first sergeant.
1: When you went back in?
2: I was a sergeant.
1: It's a good reading. And the sergeant readies best he could because so many sergeants refused to be become officers. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> Maybe you do.
0: I got out as a captain. I didn't retire. I just discharged from the Army. And so we always joke around a lot because, you know, all of our volunteers, the Help military folks for our charity. We have this event tomorrow night. Mostly Army guys. Most of us are Army guys. But mostly, these guys are mostly NCOs. So they always give me a hard time, which I deserve. You know, I, I deserve. Oh, I deserve that. I, deserve.
1: I don't know. You deserve that.
0: What did you do? What did you end up doing uh, professionally besides being in the reserves?
1: Well, I couldn't find a job. So had a contact at Michigan State College, Tom Gable. And he ran the, uh, the, the co-op where people come in from, let's say, Peps, Budweiser, Boston Store, any number of fine people to do work to, to get some employees. And they interview and he he said, Harry, we've had awfully good luck with Sears Sears Roebuck. If you come over to East Lansing, I'll interview you there and recommend you to Chicago. So I went over there, and Tom arranged an interview. I went to Chicago, and I was hired by Sears Roebuck Mm. on the store management training program. Okay. Because everybody needed everything. Shoes, lingerie, cars, pots and pans. Mm -hmm. Everybody had been exhausted. Mm -hmm. Bedding. Furniture. So at that same time, Sears was building up its stores. I see. And they needed store managers. I see. And one of the requirements was that you have adequate land to provide a parking space for the cars that everybody needs. So that's why we always had parking areas. So I was sent to Milwaukee, to the Forest Home Store, 13th and Mitchell, and started unloading trucks Mm. at the stores. And the training program had to do with the inductee following merchandise into the store, into the receiving area, the marking area, the moves of the floors, so that we were trained to always know what phase mm-hmm. you need to be in your stores. So I stayed with Sears. She and I were in five states. Mm. Poor girl. She always had to make up the home. I was already in the new job. In managing stores. And you're too young to remember it. Maybe not. The riot of 68 in Chicago, where they burned part of Chicago.
0: I know of it, maybe, but I wasn't maybe. born quite yet.
1: Well, that's sort of thing. So they burned part of Sears, and that's what caused us to build the Sears Tower
2: ah I see I didn't know that I didn't know that's what caused it
1: most people don't
2: and I've been there a pile of times what
1: Sears did they went to D.I. and they knocked off a street down there and that's where they put put the building I, I had moved there from Mankato, Minnesota in 62 and I had an office in the tower. And they, I'm going too fast. They built the tower in 70. And I went in the tower in 72. Had an office on the 43rd floor. So I got moved in. But my secretary wasn't there. So I went to personnel, they contacted her, thinking she'd been hurt. Turns out she was afraid of heights, mm. and, the office, <laughs> and the office was on the 43rd floor. So it took us a week to work that out. Oh my gosh. To boot all the windows were right down to the floor. <laughs> then they didn't have any, any wall there, so... This kills a person like that.
0: Scared to death.
1: Yeah, because he looked out from my door. There's all the Chicago. So that's what happened.
0: Did you retire from Sears? Yes. You retire from Sears.
1: Wow. I, I was in 33 years. What a great American company. I know that
0: things have changed a little bit, but at that during that time, Sears and Roebuck was the you know dominant, most popular great store.
2: American, American. Thousands
1: of people that worked for them.
2: I mean, they sold everything from clothes to everything. house kits. To They're the Walmart of today, basically. But they, they would sell houses. You could buy a house from Sears. They would ship it to you, and you would build
1: it. And Sister Bay on Maple Street, today, being lived in, my son tells me.
2: Did you, um, because you continued to serve in the Army Reserves, when the Korean War came, did you have any involvement in that, or training for that, or...
1: I did. I, I had a uh, artillery reserve battalion subject to going <clears throat> to Korea. I was I was a captain then, or a major, but I never got, never got called. Okay. But, but the, the risk was there. And, uh,
0: and you were still in, during Vietnam, too, weren't yeah, you, towards yes. the end of your yeah, but, reserve time? Um,
1: but I probably looked down to the end of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what was I, say?
0: I jumped ahead, of, you were talking
2: about the Korean War.
1: Like a flash of light went through. <laughs>
2: Your memory's better than mine. Yeah, it's your memory. You got a is couple years on wonderful. me, so. <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> I was going to
0: ask you to uh, Colonel Baker, and I just something I like to ask everybody, but you know, you grew up during the Great Depression, right? When you were a child, you saw all of that. You fought in World War II, which changed the direction of our world. You know, you've seen so many different things that our nation has been through. What advice would you give younger? Oh, gosh. I know, you. but what what advice would you give to a kid who's 15 years old today or who's just growing up today and they have their whole life ahead of them? What would you tell them after you've been through so much?
1: Well, those 10 years between 30 and 40 were so terrible my my parent was a salesman and anything the world didn't need then was a salesman there's nobody had any money but I learned out of the values of a family being together mm-hmm. of, of the duty of one, of a child to the family is important. I became a Boy Scout when I was twelve, and I enjoyed the being together with people. It probably set set up the enjoyment enjoyment I had with ROTC and the army. But I think so doesn't sound too strange. We had a duty in my family to do my best to assist them and the requirement for honor among myself and my children, my brother and sister, to the home. Mm And duty and honor sounds corny. I think it formed a good basis for my doing being a good soldier to my superiors, to my company. I joined the Masonic Order years ago to any group I was with be an honorable guy. Fit that into your words as you can, because it sounds kind of corny.
0: Yeah, but if everybody lived by that today, if children grew up with a duty and honor and respect for their family, right. our world would be very different. Absolutely, right now.
1: absolutely. You know, our jails would be full of.
0: Right. I really don't think you could give anybody better advice than that, because. If everybody followed that in everything they did, if they were at duty and honor to their company, duty and honor to their family, duty and honor to our country, think about where we would be. But today, everybody, you know.
1: It's widespread.
0: That's right. It's widespread. Steal
1: a car and go. Were you both ROTC men?
2: I'm enlisted, so I went right in three days after high school.
1: Were you
0: ROTC? I was ROTC. Where? University of Florida. I grew up in Florida.
1: What town is that?
0: Gainesville, Florida. Gainesville, Florida.
1: Never been there.
0: It's the Gators. Don't confuse with the Seminoles. It's the Gators. No. (laughs) I grew up in uh, Sarasota, Florida. Sarasota. Went to school in Gainesville. The day after I graduated, walked across the street. Uh, I'm sorry. An hour after I graduated, I walked across the street, took the oath, commissioned into the Army, and then I was off to Fort Leonard Wood to get my engineer training.
1: And you had had four years of ROTC? Yes, four years of ROTC. I was like,
0: it's, in the military today, the only way you can be an officer, there's three ways. You go to the academy, you do ROTC, or you go through OCS, Officer Candidate School but either way, you have to have your college degree. You have to, of course, unless you're battlefield promoted, which my dad was, by the way, I didn't mention, but my grandfather served in World War II with the 34th division, and they were in North Africa, Sicily, and then eventually Europe early on, early on. And then my dad served as a Marine in the Korean War and the Vietnam War so he had a, he received a battle. I don't even know if I told you this but he received a battlefield commission in Vietnam so he was actually but when he retired I think at that point he was like a captain but he was given the choice to retire as a captain or an E-8 and an E-8 paid better so he chose E-8 which is odd because now it's there's a huge discrepancy yeah, yeah maybe he was first lieutenant I don't remember yeah. but anyway E-8 paid better so he chose to retire mm-hmm. as, a, as an E-8 so he retired as a First sergeant as well. But uh, he received two Purple Hearts. He was wounded a couple times in Vietnam. He was involved in the Battle of Khe San, which was a big, big deal up, up in the airfield there. The,
1: we took a did
0: Yeah, for about six months. And um, he was involved in that and some other stuff. But he had two, two tours in Vietnam. So, But he never talked about it. And my grandpa didn't talk much about it, which is a big reason why Mike and I try to meet anybody we can like you that has been through so much. Because like I said earlier, if we don't understand or try to understand a little bit about what you went through, it'll be lost forever.
1: Did you learn anything?
0: I learned a lot. I learned a lot. I learned, I learned from you that Anytime you're offered food, you want to take it, because you never know when the next meal is going to come. Anytime
2: you have a chance to sleep, you want to sleep, because you don't know when the next...
1: This is very basic.
2: And I learned that Fort Sill hasn't changed much in <laughs> 70 years. All the snakes. It was terrible when I was there in 1992, and it was terrible when you were there in 1942. <laughs> and it's still terrible. And it was terrible when my son went there in 2020. Oh, he's there. He's in Hawaii now, but he went through basic training at Fort Sill. Some things don't change much.
0: And that concludes our interview with Lieutenant Colonel retired Harry Baker of the 76th Infantry Division, 300 Second Field Artillery Battalion, Battery C. I want to thank Colonel Baker. He's just an amazing man. Uh, you never know, as I said earlier, that he's 102 years old. Just... Very inspiring, very positive attitude. Just a real joy to to be around. And we can't wait to see him again when we return to Milwaukee in December of this year. So thank you, Colonel Baker, for sharing your amazing story with us. Thanks for all the laughs and, and you're just we're just so appreciative of all that you do. Thanks for Cody for helping us set that up. Thanks to Mike Tarr and Louis Schultz for helping arrange the interview and, and arrange such an amazing experience. So what an honor to to meet each and every one of these amazing gentlemen. We're going to be leaving in just a couple days for Normandy. As I mentioned earlier in the intro, uh, please follow along. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, obviously our website, all of it is walk among heroes. Uh, Walkamongheroes.org is the website If you'd like to look into possibly going to Normandy or to Italy on one of these experiences that we have for next year, you can visit walkamongheroes.org forward slash experiences. If you're going to be in Normandy this year and you'd like to come out and meet the World War II veterans and the Band of Brothers actors that we're going to be traveling with, go visit walkamongheroes.org forward slash night for our heroes. Either way, we'd love to meet you over there. If you have any questions, please send us a message on Instagram or Facebook or email. Our email is walkamongheroes at gmail.com. Uh, please reach out to us. We love to hear from you, love to talk to you, love hear your feedback. We love meeting people that enjoy history and most of all want to honor our veterans and those that allow us to enjoy the greatest privilege in the world, which is freedom. We support an organization called Wish for Our Heroes, so the money that we raise for these trips. Helps military families with basic needs, food, shelter, transportation, child needs, medical expenses. If you'd like to research Wish for Our Heroes more, you can visit their website, www.wishforourheroes.org. Most of all, we want to thank all of those who protect all of us every single day. We want to thank our police, our firefighters, our school teachers, all those folks who are on the front lines who allow our future leaders to develop and flourish and position all of us to to um, have a very bright future. We're going to remove the politicians from the equation, remove all those things, and thank all those who, who make our, our world tick on a daily basis. Most of all, we want to thank our military heroes for serving around the world in some very dark and scary places as we speak, as we're as you're listening to this podcast, we have soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen deployed all around the world, uh, serving all of us. And again, they're providing us with the way of life that we have today. So I want to thank all of those Army soldiers out there, the Navy, the Marine Corps, the Air Force, the Coast Guard, the Space Force. Thank you so much for putting your lives on the line to protect all of us and to preserve what I consider to be the most important privilege in the world and that's freedom until next time thank you so so much for allowing me to take you on a walk among heroes have a great week next time we talk to you we'll be in normandy and look forward to sharing some amazing stories from europe
1: take care